Amen. Uh, this morning, as we, as we celebrate Palm Sunday and as we walk through the triumphal entry, um, I want to share with you the story of two very different kingdoms. And as we walk through the text in John 12 this morning, uh, I want us to consider which kingdom we are a part of, which kingdom we're building and we're participating in. Uh, so the first kingdom is that of Jean Bedel Bocasa. Uh, back in December of 1977, the, in the, the capital of the Central, Central African Empire, I'll get it right one day, uh, one of the most expensive coronations in the world took place. Uh, it was supposed to be a replica of the coronation for Napoleon, uh, which was a few hundred or a hundred or so years before, but it was, it was incredible and it showed his great luxury and pomp. Uh, but in this event, um, Imperial Majesty Bokasa I arrived to a stadium uh, to the sound of drums and trumpets marching his announce, or announcing his uh, entrance. Uh, he rode in on a golden velvet chariot uh, led by six imported Belgian horses. Uh, Bokasa was wearing a gold wreath on his head that was made of pure gold and cost around $2.5 million. And he also wore a 32-pound robe, which had about 700,000 pearls sewn into it. And his procession began with eight of Bokasa's wives and uh, 29 of his children leading the procession, followed by his favorite wife and her son, who was heir to the throne. And this particular wife was wearing a $73,000 gown, uh, which was strewn with pearls that she'd handpicked herself. Now, uh, oh, and you can throw the slide up there, but as the emperor walked down the red carpet towards his throne, he sat down on his golden and bronze eagle throne, which, similar to his, uh, his wreath, cost about $2.5 million. And he took this, this wreath off and set it on his son's head, just as Napoleon had done in his coronation. Now, the total cost for Bocasa's coronation was $25 million back in 1977, which would amount to roughly $90 million in today's cost, which is insane. Now, unfortunately, this extravagant event um, led the Central African Empire into a season of debt, which is still affecting them to this day. Uh, but the good boot of news is that Bokasa was overthrown only a couple years after this coronation for the uh, terrible things he had done as well. But his great pride not only cost the nation the lives of many children um, who, who stood against his, his, uh, his reign, but he also, in his great pride, uh, considered himself at his last moments the 13th apostle of Jesus, giving himself a, a place of special authority, claiming that he had a mission from God. That is the kingdom of Bokasa. That is the kingdoms of this world. And the other kingdoms that we've tried to build here on this earth are just like that. It's a kingdom of selfishness, of, of pride. It's a, it's a kingdom where the only person that matters is number one. It's a very different kingdom than the one that was proclaimed nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, this kingdom had a king as its ruler, but there was nothing so special or great about his appearance. He... His coronation was very different than that of Bocasa's as well. He didn't arrive on a velvet carriage led by war horses. He came riding in on a donkey. His, his crown wasn't made with an 80-carat diamond and gold, but of thorns. His throne wasn't made of gold and bronze, but was one of wood and nails. This kingdom was very different than the one that we've seen in this world. It wasn't a conquering kingdom like Genghis Khan's, whose 
whose kingdom was the largest that's ever been in history, and he wiped out nearly 5 to 10% of the population. This kingdom is rather an unconquerable one where the king lays down his own life for his citizens. So as we look at the text in John 12 today, uh, I want us to consider which kingdom we are a part of, which kingdom we are building. Is it our own? Are we crowning ourselves as the king or queen of our empire? Or are we following the servant-hearted king who, who gave everything so that we could be with him? So uh, if you have your Bibles with me, turn to John chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be reading from verses 12 to 26. So John chapter 12, from verses 12 to 26, we'll be reading here. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took a palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed these, this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethany, Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. In, in this series, The Gospel, we've been walking through uh, the book of John and asking the question, what is the gospel? How does it play out in our lives? What do we understand it to be and how are we transformed by it? Now, as we've said before, the gospel of John is a very different gospel than the others, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that it was, it was written with a purpose to show that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is Yahweh himself. And not only that, but there's also an interesting portion of John's gospel that's different than the others in that of the 33 years that Jesus walked on the earth, uh, half of John's gospel accounts for the last week of Jesus' life. And we call this the Passion Week or the Holy Week. Uh, from the time Jesus entered Jerusalem with the crowds praising him to the time that he hung on the cross. But why did John focus so much of his gospel on just this one week of Jesus' life? What was, what was so important that we need to understand here that he was trying to get across. The point is that he came, that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. That he was born into this world because he so loved us and yet he was born to give up his life. 
The purpose for which Jesus came into this world culminated on the cross. And John spends so much time accounting this because it's dire for us to understand it, to understand why Jesus came what he came to do. And not only that, but Jesus modeled for us the life in which we should live. He showed us how we ought to participate in his kingdom. And he compared the empires of this world with his own empire and showed us what it looked like. So what does the king's empire look like? What does Jesus' kingdom look like? Well, uh, before we kind of get to this text of the triumphal entry, I want to talk about a little bit of the scenes and events around this portion of scripture. What was happening uh, just before this? There's a few significant events. And one of those that we just mentioned was Lazarus. Uh, Jesus had just come from Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And this miracle was one that spread like fire among the locals because no one heard of someone resurrecting from the dead. Uh, it was a very obvious miracle. Many people saw it. And so Jesus, or sorry, people came from distant cities to come see Jesus, to see this not only resurrected man who was once dead and ask him questions, but to, to meet the man who had raised him from the dead, this person who had power over life and death itself. Now, if you recall some of Jesus' earlier miracles in the Gospels, um, he would often tell people that he healed to not share any of that information with anyone. He would often tell them to keep it to themselves or go and share it quietly among their friends and family or to not say anything at all, but to worship God in the temple because of what had been done for them. And so from the beginning of the book of John to the end of the gospel, it becomes more clear who Jesus is. He starts revealing himself in greater ways as the gospel progresses. And we get an increasingly clearer picture of who Jesus is. And he reveals himself as the Messiah. And so this miracle, for instance, with Lazarus, he raised him from the dead, is showing that he has power over life and death. And the people are now witnessing him as their Messiah a little more clearly. So, as Jesus is closer to fulfilling his purpose, he becomes more revealed to the people. Now, uh, in the series of events, after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, he went into the city of Jericho, which was a, a very important city. And in the context of the other Gospels, we don't read it in the book of John, but uh, we understand from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he went into the home of a man named Zacchaeus where he had a short conversation with him. talking to my wife about how I should mention it was, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, but Zacchaeus, he was a, a chief tax collector. He was, um, he was a, a person who collected government tax on behalf of the government from the people, but the problem is that they were usually corrupt people. They were usually ones who would steal from the poor to make themselves rich. They made their money by skimming a little more off of everyone's taxes. And so, when Jesus came into his house to meet with this man Zacchaeus and, and eat with him and fellowship, all the people were kind of confused and thinking, how could Jesus do this? If he's the Messiah, why is he going into that person's home? Isn't, doesn't he know that that person's sinful? That he's a tax collector? Because Zacchaeus wasn't very well liked by his own people, by the, the people in his community, but he was loved by the king. The kingdom of Jesus treated Zacchaeus very differently than the kingdom of the world had. Because in the eyes of the worldly empire, he was rightfully disdained. 
He stole from his own people. He extorted the poor. But in the eyes of the kingdom of Jesus, he was, he was accepted wholeheartedly. He was still loved and sought by Jesus, even though he did terrible things to his own people and to the, to the least who couldn't take care of themselves. So I want to ask, which kingdom are you seeking? Is there someone in your life who has caused you pain or harm or suffering? It's, it's easy to treat these people with disdain to, to avoid them because that's how the kingdom of this world operates. But Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and to follow him. He asks us to love and pray for those who harm us, not to take vengeance. And the difference that made in Zacchaeus' life, the difference that that love that Jesus showed him, the kingdom that he had showed him, was that Zacchaeus was transformed. He paid back fourfold anyone who he had taken from. It might have bankrupted him at that point. He was transformed. He understood that as he gave away his money, as he became poor in the world, that he became rich in the kingdom of God. So it's difficult to accept those who have hurt us and even harder to love them. But what has Jesus done for us? How can we, like him, love the Zacchaeuses of our lives? Because in Romans 5.8, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't say that once we shaped up our life, once we got the bad habits out, or once we were just good enough people that God saved us. It says that in the midst of our evils, while we were still doing the things that caused Jesus to go up on the cross, while we were still doing those things, he paid for our sins. He loves us within that. He showed us the greatest act of love, and he asks us to follow in his footsteps, to love those around us like he loved to love those who we disagree with, to love those who have harmed us. So again, I ask, which kingdom are you seeking? Now, after Jesus met at Zacchaeus' home, he then headed towards Jerusalem, uh, where a huge crowd followed him, partly because of the miracles of Lazarus, uh, partly because of other miracles where he healed a couple blind men on the way. Um, but as he was entering Jerusalem, people were throwing palms at his feet, or the feet of his colt. And they were laying down their cloaks at his feet. And so after Jesus came that night, or came, sorry, entered into Jerusalem, um, he ended up teaching in different parts of Jerusalem in the temple. And so at the end of this week of him preaching and sharing the gospel message with all these people, uh, we then come to the, the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In the context of what's happening next, nearing the end of his life, the true king of the world spent his last moments washing his disciples' feet. The, the creator of every flower, of every undiscovered planet, sat down to wash the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. Now, I'm sure that if any of us could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus face-to-face, uh, for just one minute, I'm sure that we would try and cram in as many questions as we possibly could into that one minute, understanding maybe past events or understanding who he is more, but I'm sure many of us would have questions that we would ask him in that minute. We try to use up that time as best as we could, but Jesus, knowing that he had only a few hours left to live on this earth, he bent down, got some water in a bowl, picked up a cloth and washed the dirty feet of his friends and his traitor. In his last moments on earth, 
Jesus wasn't preaching in the temple as he'd done in the week. Jesus wasn't going around healing as many possible people as he could before he left. He chose to act in humility. In his last moments, Jesus wanted us to understand as best as we could why he was doing this, to show us what is most important in this world, to not look for our own kingdom, but to serve and to love others, to participate in his. Do you see how Jesus' kingdom is very different than that of the world? Jesus humbled himself, even to those who didn't deserve it. And even in his last moments, the, the other kingdom in the last days of Emperor Bokasa, he declared himself the 13th apostle, claiming his own pride and status in the world. He used his last moments to build himself up. Now, the one kingdom that Jesus asks us to participate in isn't, isn't one of pride and selfishness, where we build our own importance or place in the world but one of humility and service to others. So as Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem with the crowds praising him, calling out Hosanna, he rides in on a young donkey. And in the text that we read earlier here, John points out that this is a fulfillment of prophecy uh, that was written in the book of Zechariah, that the king would come gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, now, the irony is that Many people praised Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, not because he was a gentle, humble king, but because they thought that he was going to conquer their enemies, because they thought he was going to be very much like the kings of this world. Uh, because you see, in the book of Zechariah, the few verses that come right after that prophecy of Jesus riding on a donkey, it says this, "'Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning.'" The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling blood on the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. This is the type of king that they expected to come. This is the one they wanted Jesus to be, one who reigned with an army and destroyed and overcame the Romans, their enemies. And so they praised him because of the things that they had seen him do. Their praise was right, but they also praised him because they expected him to be a conqueror by blood and sword and destruction and pride and slaughter in the ways of the worldly kingdom. And it's no wonder then that when Jesus fails to live up to this interpretation of who he was expected to be, that the fickle crowds then go from their shouts of Hosanna to crucify him the week later. I've known uh, in, my, in my time a few friends who've walked away from their faith because, um, because God worked in ways other than what they expected. They couldn't understand why God would act in a certain way or why he would allow certain things to happen, and so they, they walked away from him claiming that either he's not real or that he doesn't care about us. And I believe that all of us will come to the same struggle in our faith at some point, where we don't seem to understand what God is doing or even recognize that he's working at all. It feels like God's distant or he's opposite to the way we think he is. And in these times, we have the same choice, to walk away and seek our own kingdom to seek one where we build ourselves up or to trust in a king who at times we can't understand. 
to have faith of what we hope for even when we can't see it. Because the, Jesus, or the kingdom of Jesus isn't always a clear one, but we can trust that it is good. He is good. And in these times, we need to trust him that he's good. We need to cling to the promises in the Bible of what he's promised us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So when we feel pained by the brokenness of this world, when we live in this sinful world, and we feel its suffering, we can look to the cross where our Savior laid down his life for us, to be with us, that we should consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners so that we won't grow weary and lose heart, where Jesus was put to death so that we could live, where he was rejected by God so that we could be accepted, where Jesus submitted his life so that we would have an example to follow. That's the good news, that Jesus saved us from our own sin by paying the price with his own life, the one that we ourselves should have paid but never could have. You see, Jesus came into Jerusalem knowing it would cost him his life. He rode into Jerusalem knowing that he would be crucified. He willingly came to the place where he would face excruciating punishment, and he calls us to do the same. Jesus said, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, the beauty of this kingdom is that it's overflowing with hope and with joy. At times, it's, it's easy to overlook the abundance of goodness available to us and just focus on the difficult things ahead of us. Uh, sometimes it can feel like a religion where we earn God's love by giving up these things in our lives that we want to hold dearly onto, our own kingdom. And so we count the cost. If it's worthwhile, we follow in the steps of his kingdom, but the kingdom God calls us to is one of paradoxes. His power is made perfect in our weakness. If we want to be rich, we must first be poor in spirit. If we want to be first, we must be willing to be last. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. If we want to rule, we have to serve. If we want to live, we must die. Jesus invites us to follow in his upside-down kingdom, to forsake our selfish and proud kingdom in this world and to allow Jesus to transform us, to shape us, to become more like him. We lay down our lives, but we gain Jesus. And in him, we have everything that we need. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. This is what happened in the life of James, the brother of John, one of the 12 apostles. Um, in one of the one great story in the Bible is when uh, James and John were with Jesus in a Samaritan town, and as they were preaching the gospel to these people, um, they they are rejected by a group of Samaritans, and they're told to get out of town. And so, James and John, of course, in their um, uh, in their enthusiasm, they ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire on the Samaritans and burn them all away uh, for rejecting Jesus. It's a very worldly kingdom view. And after Jesus rebuked James and John, they learned their lesson. But fast forward to the book of Acts, we read that James was actually the first apostle to be put to death uh, by King Herod for being a follower of Jesus. He was the first apostle to lay down his life. The man who once wanted to call down fire from heaven to burn the people who rejected Jesus was now laying down his own life 
for those same people who rejected Jesus. He was transformed and he gave up his kingdom to find a better one. He considered what Jesus offered as far more value than anything else the world could have offered. For our light and momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can put that last slide up for me there, please, Owen. But the kingdom of Bokasa began with glory and it ended with death. But the kingdom of Jesus begins with death and ends with glory. Which kingdom are you following today? Dying to ourselves is the cost of Jesus' kingdom, a, di a daily dying to ourselves, but the reward is greater than we can possibly imagine. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The future coronation of Jesus' return will make any worldly coronation look like kids playing with mud pies. We have two kingdoms set before us, one of worldly gain, one of selfishness, one of pride, and one of humility and self-sacrifice. Which kingdom will you follow? I want to close with these words uh, that Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians. And I'm just changing the tense a little bit, but um, the message stays the same. Forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ or which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be with you. Father, in this world, it's hard not to live for ourselves, to live for the kingdom of me. But God, we thank you that you've showed us a way, that you are the way, that you have shown us the kingdom and revealed to us the Father through yourself. And Father, as we participate in your kingdom, as we learn to give up our own and live for you, we ask for grace, for humility. God, we ask that the parts of our lives where we're acting in selfishness and pride, that you would strip these away from us. Father, we desire to become more like you, but we also feel the pull to live in the kingdom of this world. So we ask for your strength. We ask for your help. But Father, we thank you that you've made every way possible for us not begrudgingly, but because you have loved us and loved us to the very end. So Father, we thank you for this great love that you've lavished on us. Amen.